0: Well, thank you again for welcoming me this evening. It is a pleasure to be with the saints uh, from around our presbytery. Um, and I'm so thankful for you all and the work that God is doing in you and through you. Um, so, yeah, thank you. It's, it's a joy to be here. If you have a, a Bible uh, with you, would you turn with me to Romans Chapter 8. It's printed in the bulletin that we're going to look at 28 through 30, and that was my mistake. We're actually going to continue and finish the chapter. And I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, It is a new year. Happy New Year. And with new years comes New Year's resolutions new habits, new changes in our lives. We want to change something, don't we? We look back on our year before and we think, this year's going to be different. This year's going to be better. This year's, I'm going to pick up this habit, I'm going to drop that habit. This year will be better than last year. We want change. We want to be different than before. Um, The greatest change that any human can experience is... This transition from death to life, from unbelief to belief, from a child of wrath into a child of God, going from outside of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of God. In my church this morning, we began a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I made the comment that the whole sermon is a description of the life of someone who has been brought into the kingdom of God, and it is utterly different than the world. We want to be different. We want to look different. We want to be part of something different. And God has given us that change, that transition, that transformation in what he calls salvation. What God has done for us and to us through his son and applied to our hearts and the spirit. The first step of salvation uh, that we're going to look at this evening is something called election. And uh, I'm, maybe you've heard of that term before, maybe you haven't, maybe you have fears of what that term means. I know when I was first learning about this doctrine in college, I re- resisted it for a time. It is a uh, a doctrine there's a lot to say about. But this morning I'm not going to give you a lecture about the doctrine of election, no, um, I think, rather, the doctrine of election is to be something that's encouraging. That it's not supposed to just impact our head, but is to move deeper down into our heart. To encourage us, to give us hope, to give us encouragement. It's supposed to change our hearts. It's supposed to change the way that we perceive ourselves. It's supposed to change the way that we live in this world. Most importantly, this doctrine is supposed to change the way that we perceive and interact with God. There's verses all over the New Testament, all over the Bible, that discuss the doctrine of election. But I think here in Romans 8, we see Paul talk about the doctrine in such a way that the rubber meets the road. Uh, I I love the book of Romans. It was one of the first books that I really poured into when I was growing in my faith and making it my own. It taught me so much about God's character and who I am in relation to that. It taught me about the, the doctrines of grace and of salvation, that we are saved by faith alone, that we have this imputed righteousness given to us. But as I've gotten older and as I've gone through life, as I've gone through challenges and difficulties... The book of Romans has changed for me no longer to be merely a book that I learn things from, but a book that gives me encouragement. And so my prayer this evening, as we look at this passage, as we discuss the doctrine of election, that it wouldn't just be something that you think about, but that you would allow the Lord to move in your heart, to give you encouragement, to give you strength for whatever lies ahead in your life tonight. Paul is writing this letter, this letter of encouragement to a church, a church in Rome, a church that was planted just like Christ's Presbyterian church has been planted. It's a growing church. It's a new church. It's a church filled with men and women, brothers and sisters in the faith, just like us, who wake up every day and go to work, who wake up every day and have interactions with people, have difficult conversations, who face uncertainties and anxieties and worries. This is a letter written to people like us. And Paul, in this passage, uses the doctrine of election to give us hope. Put simply, he says this, if God has made you his own, no matter what you face in your life, you are secured in his hands. That's what the doctrine of election teaches us. That if God has made you his own, no matter what you are facing, you are secure in the arms of God. We're going to read Romans 8, 28 through 39. And if you are a note taker, I've got three simple points. The doctrine of election teaches us that God loves you, that God chose you, and that God is for you. That's what we're going to look at tonight. God loves you, God chose you, and God is for you. Let's read God's word from Romans chapter 8, beginning with 28 through 39. And we know... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that not only through your word you reveal who you are to us, but that in your word you give us great comfort. I pray now, Spirit, would you use me and my words through your message. Would you use this time to encourage us? Use this time to draw us near to you, that you might comfort us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, election says God loves you. In verse 29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, predestined, that's our operative word. It's another way of saying that he predetermined. He determined beforehand. He elected beforehand. This is our operative word. And this choice, this election, this predetermination, we read in verse 29, was based upon his foreknowledge. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he foreknew, He elected. What does it mean then for God to know something beforehand and therefore elect us? That's the question, isn't it? What does it mean to know something about somebody beforehand in middle school? On uh, recess, we didn't have a playground. We had a big blacktop and a field. And often we would play pickup games of football. And uh, I was never great at football. I enjoyed watching football, but I was never great at playing it. And like all pickup games, uh, it would begin by everyone lining up on a line and selecting two captains who would then take turns one after the other, making their picks for who they want on their team. Now, again, I wasn't any good at football. But Connor was great. Connor was really good at football. Um, I knew Connor from elementary school through middle school into high school. Connor was always the star athlete. Didn't matter what game we were playing, Connor always won. He was so good, he led our high school football team, Division I, out of Columbus, Ohio, Hilliard-Davidson High School. He led our football team to two state championships. He went on to play for the Air Force Academy. He played quarterback for Air Force. Connor was great, and everyone knew it. So every day, we'd play football, we'd line up on the line, and the first captain always chose Connor. They knew that if they chose Connor, they'd win. Now again, I wasn't good at football. I was never picked first. I was often picked towards the end. Is this the way in which God elects? That he knows our potential and because he knows our potential, he picks us? Is Paul saying that God elected you because he knew something about you beforehand, and so he chose you? No. That's not how election works. You see, if God elected you because he knew your potential beforehand— well, then there is something better about you than your non-Christian neighbors. That means that there is something about your morality or your ethics, your good works, your good Christian behavior that makes you better than them. That kind of thinking creates pride and arrogance. And that is completely opposite to the message of the gospel that we are elected by grace alone, unmerited, unearned, and undeserved. No, God did not know your potential and therefore choose you. And if God elected you because he knew that you would one day love him, if he knew that looking down the course of history, if I choose you, I know you're going to love me back. That's why I'm going to choose you well, then we could never escape the constant sense of pressure and anxiety to maintain that level of affections and emotions towards God. If He loves us because He saw that we loved Him, then we would feel the need to constantly be trying to keep up that act, wouldn't we? And on good days when we feel the blessings and mercy of the Lord, it'd be easy to love him. But on those hard days, when we grow impatient with our kids, when we have that tough conversation at work, those long seasons of not waking up early and drawing near in prayer, those weeks and then months and then seasons of dryness towards the Lord, When our affections just aren't there, man, in those days, I'd be shaking in my boots, doubting my salvation. No, that's not what God's foreknowledge means. He did not see your potential. He did not see what you would do with his love. That's not what it means for God to elect us. So what does it mean for God to have a foreknowledge? Well, biblically speaking, knowledge has less to do with information and more to do with a relationship. John 1. John tells us that the true light came into the world. The word of God came into the world. Yet the world did not know him. I don't think that's a comment about people not having an intellectual knowledge of Jesus. Jesus. But it's John saying that relationally, they did not receive him. Knowledge, according to the Bible, has more to do with the relationship than it has to do with knowledge or intellect. To know someone was to have a particular and special affection and delight in someone. In Genesis chapter 4, we read that Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived and had a son. To know someone then, as a husband knows his wife, to know someone then is to come together and have an intimate relationship with them. To know someone is to love that person with a particular and special affection and delight. Paul is saying that God loved us. He loved us before And because he loved you before, he made you his own. He loved you before the foundations of the world, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1. That means the whole plan of redemption from the triune God that was planned and accomplished and applied to us. It was decided that you would be included in that before the foundation of the world. if he loved you before the foundation of the world, if he made you his own before the foundation of the world, that means that he loved you before you could do anything to prove yourself worthy of that love. I think the greatest picture of this is a parent awaiting the birth of their child. They don't know anything about their child yet. They don't know what they're going to amount to in life. They don't know about their personalities yet. They don't know anything about that child. And yet they love that child before. Perhaps adoption is an even better picture of that love. Parents of adoption go into that relationship blind as to the future of this child, and yet they choose to love them beforehand. Election says God loves you, not because of your love for him, not because of your potential service in his kingdom, not for anything, but before the foundation of the world, he determined to set his particular and special, dare I say, his intimate love Upon you. I hope that's encouraging to you. That if you did nothing to earn it or deserve it. Friends, you can do nothing to take it away. He has made you his own. You had nothing to do with it. election says God loves you. But it also says God chose you. It says, you were selected. You were picked out of the crowd. You were singled out for a purpose. Growing up in school, when I was home during the summer, the only thing on TV in the middle of the day was The Price is Right. Anyone else watch The Price is Right as a kid? I haven't watched it since Drew Carey took over. But as a kid, I loved watching... The Price is Right. And I loved it because seemingly randomly, individuals were picked out of the audience. They were chosen. They had their names drawn to come and be a contestant. And if they played the game right, they would walk away, what I thought was the best prize of all, a round trip, all expense paid, to the other side of the world. It was to Greece or Italy or Bahamas. Oh, I just loved thinking, wouldn't it be awesome to go on that trip? I wish I could be picked to go on that journey. Friends, election says you have been chosen. You have been picked. You have been selected to go on a journey that God is bringing you someplace. He is taking you somewhere. He is bringing you on a journey. He is accomplishing something in you. We read what he's doing in verse 29. We have been predestined. We have been elected to be conformed to the image of his son. That's where he's taking us. That is what he's doing with us. He is making us like his son. That is the objective. That is the trajectory. That is what he wants to accomplish in us. We are going on a journey of transformation, a path that leads to our conforming to the image of Christ. Friends, election says that God has chosen us to go on a journey with the most glorious destination in mind. You are becoming like Christ. That is what we're made for. Genesis teaches us right at the very beginning, right as mankind is being made, we are told that mankind was made in the image of God. And even though sin has come into the world and has marred that image, we, because God has chosen us through Christ, are now being recreated renewed, conformed into the image of Christ, who is the exact imprint of God. Friends, that is what we are made for. We are being made into the image of Christ. And this is an ongoing process. It's messy. It's dirty. My kids, this afternoon, we were playing play And they were taking those molds and putting the clay in the molds and pressing it together. And it was messy. Plato was getting all over the table, all over the floor, all over their hands. But when they opened it up, they had the mold of the thing that they wanted. That is what God is doing in our lives. He is pressing us into his image. He is taking our actions and transforming them so that we would become the hands and feet of Christ. He's taking our hearts and renewing them so that we would have deep affections for God, that we would no longer desire the things of our past, but that we would have new and pure and delightful desires. He's taking our thoughts, our words, and sanctifying them, purifying them for his own glory. This is what the Spirit of God is doing within us. He's conforming us. And it's not going to happen fully here and now. It's a process. It will be finished in our final destination, in glory. We see this this process laid out for us. In verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Friends, it is a journey, a process, election, calling, justification, sanctification, all the way to glorification. It is a path that we are on, and it brings us to glory. It is an unbreakable chain of events, a golden chain that is unbreakable, immovable, and it ends in glory. Friends, don't you see you are on a journey to glory? This should be encouraging to us again, because the reality is every one of us in this room are in process. None of us have made it. You haven't made it. Your spouse hasn't made it. Your kids haven't made it yet. We're all in process still. We're not there yet. A few weeks ago, traveling for the holidays, my family packed up our things before Christmas, drove down to Columbus to have Christmas with my family, and we drove back up to Cleveland, had our Christmas service on Sunday, packed everything back up on a Monday, drove down to Dayton. It felt like deja vu. And I kid you not, 10 minutes into the car ride, we were on... 271 going down to Columbus and my kids in the back seat said are we there yet 10 minutes in I'm like no we are not there yet friends we're not there yet we haven't finished this journey towards glorification god's not done working on you he's still conforming us into the image of christ that's a good thing. If you're alive and breathing today, He is working on you. Philippians 1 says this He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. There's still more for us to do, more for Him to do in us. So do not convince yourself that the rest stop is the destination. Don't settle for where you're at now. Press on. There's more that lies ahead. You haven't reached the end. Don't say, I'm done. I I love the atmosphere of a church plant because you hardly feel I'm done in a church plant. And I'm so encouraged to see that men and women are coming to this initiative, this movement of God and saying, God's not done yet. God's still using me. This might be your second, third, fourth, fifth church that you've been a member of, that God has used you in. Recognize that God is still moving here. He's still moving in your life. He's still using you no matter your age, no matter your experience. God is using you. Even as you prepare for the year ahead as you make family and individual resolutions, resolve to grow in the Lord this year. What do you want to do growing in the Lord this year? What is on your heart? Or better yet, ask the question, what does the Lord want to do with me this year? He's not done with you. God has chosen you to go on a journey that results, in your conformity to Christ. It's the most glorious thing. Third and finally, we see not only that election says God loves us, and not only election says God has chosen us, but finally, we see here that election says God is for us. Verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is saying that this doctrine of election gives us great hope, great encouragement, because despite your circumstances and despite your sin, God is for you. Despite your circumstances, he goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Whatever circumstance you find yourself in now, remember who the church is that he's writing to. These were men and women who were facing legitimate things working against them. Tribulations and distress. And they were facing persecution for their faith. They were facing danger and sword. Rejection from their friends and family. This was a new thing that they were a part of. I'm sure they had friends and family that thought, they're weird. I don't know if I want to invite them to the holidays. They're going to talk to me about Jesus? At work, I'm sure that they faced fears. Their employers would say, what what you believe is so backwards. Get with the times. Be more inclusive, would you? They were facing rejection from their neighbors. I'm sure some of these Christians brought over some baked goods and says, how can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I pray for you? And they had the door slammed in their face. But despite, or in addition to persecution, I'm sure these Christians felt other circumstances, financial worry. I'm sure there was a brother or sister in this church that lost their job recently. That came to the end of the month and didn't know how they were going to pay their bills. Homelessness joblessness, financial distress. Whatever your circumstance, things outside of your control, things that arise unexpectedly. Friends, the church in Rome was not anything different than the church today. We are facing the same issues. We're humans just like them. We're brothers and sisters in Christ just like them. We face the same circumstances that they're facing. And Paul says, if God is for you, who can be against you? What can be against you? And he's not downplaying the circumstance. He's not saying that if you really understood election, if you really understood God, if you really understood your faith, well, then your life would be comfortable. No, he's not downplaying the circumstance. He's saying that if you really understood what God is doing in loving you and choosing you and making you his own, that whatever comes your way, whatever hostility you might face, whatever natural issues that you are facing, they are but light and momentary afflictions. They're real, but they're momentary on our way to glory. He says earlier in chapter 8 that he considers that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's not downplaying the circumstances. He's saying that there is a beautiful panorama, a tapestry spread out from eternity past into eternity future. And we are woven into that fabric. It began with love. And it ends in glory. The hardships of your life, real as they may be, are just a little thread in the beautiful tapestry of the glory He is bringing us to. If God is for us, nothing can be against us. No circumstance is against us. But God is for us not only. Whatever circumstance, God is also for us despite our sin. You might ask, Pastor Jeremy, what about my sin? What about those times in which I willingly choose not to love God? What about those times that I willingly choose to turn my head and my heart away from Him? What about those times in which I willingly go against His law? Jeremy, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what, where I've been. You don't even know what I'm trapped in now. Jeremy, if you knew my heart, how could you say that God is for me? How could God ever be for me? Paul says again and again, even your sin does not get in the way. God is for you despite your sin. He says this. He says, who is to condemn? Who is to bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is no one. No one can condemn you. No one can bring a charge against you. No one is able to bring up your sin why? Because Jesus is the one who died. Jesus is the one who is raised. Jesus is the one who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. That means right now, this very moment, Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, is standing before his father on your behalf. And as you hear the voice in your head, The whisper in your heart that says, you aren't lovable. You're wicked. I can't believe you think that you're worthy enough to be here tonight. I can't believe you're hiding what's really going on. Those voices go up to the throne room and Jesus Christ stands there and says, no. That's done. I have paid for that. He is mine. I have given my life for him. I have died for him. I have paid his penalty. I have died in his place and I have risen to new life. He is mine. Friends, your sin does not get in the way of God being for you. Because Jesus has died for you. Because Jesus has died for you, you are His. Jesus, He's always saying before the Father, His sin is forgiven. I've died for Him. I've paid His price. He's covered. He's mine. This is what it means to be elected. It means that God loves you and he loved you before you could do anything for it. It means that God chose you and he's picked you for a journey. He's working on you. He's doing something in you. He's bringing you to glory. It means that God is for you. Despite whatever circumstance you're in, you can be assured that God is for you. Those things don't mean he's against you. God is for you. And despite your sin, take heart, brothers and sisters. Jesus died for you. And because of that, God is for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this outpouring of love, this encouragement and hope, this reminder that you are for us, that you love us, and that you're working in our lives. We pray, Spirit, would you remind us again and again tomorrow morning, Tuesday, Wednesday, all week long. Remind us of that truth. You love us. You're working on us. And you're for us. We thank you for the display of that love on the cross. We pray as we approach the table now, would you use that opportunity to sear that onto our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.